Part of my research this week, I happened to be in a location where where I was staying at work that I had multiple Christian television stations available, and I'd done a little surfing. That was part of my research, a little channel surfing. I wanted to see what the dominant preachers of the television airways were preaching these days. I don't I don't watch them very often. I can't stomach too much of it. Uh, so so I, I don't, on a regular basis, I don't watch a lot of television preachers. But I wanted to find out what, you know, somewhat of the theme was to get an idea of what is being propagated among the airways as it relates to television, now not radio. And I heard very, very little, if nothing at all, in regards to sin or how to abstain from sin or living a Christ-like life or the need to endeavor to live a Christ-like life or a spirit-filled life. Most of what I heard was centered around prosperity, was centered around, you know, those particular types of... Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to everyone being prosperous, but uh, we should prosper, as Paul said, as our soul prospers. But uh, today I want to embark upon the subject of avoiding the snares of sin. While it may not be popular among many of the religious movements of today, sin is still a prevalent problem. I don't care how many years you've been saved, how many years you've claimed to have the Holy Spirit, you still have to battle sin. We all do. And uh, so it's important to note that our lesson today comes out of Proverbs chapter 6. Our text will be verses 16 through 28 this morning. The unifying theme of Proverbs, and I'm going to talk a bit about Proverbs here in just a moment. I may be repetitious of some things that Brother Dave has already mentioned to you in previous weeks, but uh, I think it bears reputation. The unifying theme of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. It being the beginning of wisdom. Now, I want you to understand something here very briefly. When we think of the fear of the Lord, we often have this tendency to think of of this God that stands there with a big old stick in his hand, like, and ready to swat us down whenever we make the wrong. That's not the fear of the Lord that we're talking about. The fear of the Lord in which the writer here refers to, in which the word Lord refers to, is it's expressed in many ways, and this is the theme that's repeated throughout the book here in the book of Proverbs. And the, it means the, it's the secret of obtaining, the fear of the Lord is the secret of obtaining genuine wisdom. Please understand that. Now, it's not the terror of, of the tyrant that we're talking about. It's not the terror of the tyrant. I, I, I always feared my father in this respect. Not that I felt he was lurking around every corner to watch and see if I was doing something wrong. But I feared him in the sense that I honored him and respected him for his authority and for his role in my life and for who he was. And that I knew that if I did do wrong, I would... I would be punished according to the deed that I'd done. There was an honor and a reverence there for him, and still to this day. You know, I've been an adult for a long time, and I would still give reverence to my father 
fact, the Bible talks about that. The Bible talks about pastors and preachers and teachers addressing and, and, and dealing with the elder saints and the elder leadership in the church as fathers. And not to rebuke them in the sense that you, you, you know, would get rough with them. But that's, it's, it's not the terror of the tyrant, but the, but the kind of awe and respect which will lead to obedience to him who is the wisest of all. That's the kind of fear we're talking about. A fear that will, it's, it's a fear of awe and greatness. Understanding, acknowledging him, he is the creator. He has the sovereign right. He is the great I am. Acknowledging him and fearing him in that sense, the awe and the magnitude of God's greatness. And then what even to me even magnifies that beyond even comprehension is the fact that this great God and this Savior that, that we all so much ha- abides within us. It's mind-boggling to me to imagine that this God who spoke the world in existence has this enormous and immense power, no power greater than his, no authority greater than his. I don't care what the kings and the leaders of the nations of the world say. God's greatness and authority is God's greatness and authority, and he can snap this thing to a screeching halt in just one spoken word. So it's with that kind of, that's the kind of fear we're talking about. And that kind of fear produces wisdom. Amen. Proverbs, no doubt, I I, I say this and, and I'm assuming now, that no doubt the writings of Solomon's father, David, influenced him dramatically in his writing of the many books that he did. Solomon has left us more books than any other Old Testament writer with the exception of Moses. Now, it seems probable that his song of Solomon was written when he was kind of a young romantic. And his Proverbs, if you will, when he was, uh, you know, he was somewhat mature and at the height of his powers, he had learned a few things. When we're young, we're kind of dumb. We think we know a lot. And uh, we think we're pretty smart, but as time progresses and we get a little older and a little more mature, we begin to figure out, I didn't know so much after all. Amen? I wasn't so wise after all. If I could go back and retract all the dumb things I'd done in, in, in the first 15, 20 years of my adulthood, oh boy, <laughs> would life ever be different? So we understand that probably his Proverbs, when he was more mature and, and, and at the height of his powers, and in the Ecclesiastes, when he had become more aged and more inclined to philosophical conclusions. In other words, back in the Ecclesiastes, he was looking back at his life and kind of reminiscing on the things he had learned and become more philosophical. Because a man of his broad spectrum had learned many things. A man that kind of aired like he did and started out well and had kind of bounced around the spectrum and all over the place had learned much over the years about the things of the Lord and about, you know, vanity and about all of these things that, that are so prevalent. And perhaps in, the, in his writing of the Ecclesiastes, he became just a little more cynical, uh, you know, in his, in his elder years and in his old age. The Solomon's name simply means peaceful. 
during the 40 years of Solomon's reign, it was the 40 years of peace with Israel. But it was also a time of great expansion for them. They probably expanded farther during his reign than any uh, other time in their history. The fear of the Lord is the beginning or principal part of knowledge. Never forget that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the principal part of knowledge. The wisdom that's contained in the book of Proverbs, if I may say it in this way, is as meaningful today as when it was written. In other words, it's applicable for today. In fact, perhaps, and I don't know all of the things that was going on back in that day, but perhaps more so today than any other time in history. It is applicable for today. Solomon tried to take what he had learned, what he knew, what he observed, not only from his teaching from his father, but what he observed and had learned as being a king up until this point, and applied it to God's truth and biblical meaning, so that, you know, they say a wise man learns from his own mistakes, and a really wise man learns from the mistakes of others. He said, hey, I want you to learn. I've made some really foolish, done some foolish things. So it's applicable for today. It is neither a prosperity pamphlet, nor is it how to succeed handbook. That's not what Proverbs is about. It tells rather how to order one's values. And when we order our values right, it leads to character, which leads to wholeness, which leads to satisfaction. It also warns the pitfalls along the way, which we're going to be talking about today, and declares the folly of not developing the fear of the Lord. That's the whole theme. Remember, that's the whole underlying theme throughout the book of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. That awesome awe and reverence of God as our creator. Amen? One more thing and then we'll move into our lesson for today. Now, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in the book of Proverbs not one time. However, wisdom refers to her spirit which is of course, is the Spirit of God. Amen? So although the Holy Spirit is not directly mentioned, it's still there. By inference, it is there. When he talks about the Spirit of Wisdom. In fact, the main point of the book is that wisdom apart from God is impossible. Now we grow, naturally we grow a little wiser with age. If we take the lessons of life and we apply them, we will grow a little older by natural attrition, or a little wiser by natural attrition. But we must understand the main point of the proverb is that wisdom apart from God is impossible. So in that sense, his spirit is prominent throughout the writings of Proverbs. Amen? Amen. Again, the fear of the Lord... <laughs> is the central truth around which all of Proverbs revolves. I'm going to emphasize that over and over again because today there is such a lack of awe and reverence and just a general all-out fear of the Lord in our society, among so-called Christians and religious believers. The acknowledgement that He is all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-being, and all-powerful. 
The idea is that the wise person displays a loving reverence for God, which includes submission to His will and obedience to His Word. Amen. The structure of Proverbs might go something like this. It includes what we call a prologue, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Then it includes an epilogue, which is verses, uh, chapter 31, verses 10 through, thir- thir- 10 through 31. At the beginning and the end of the book are sections of extended instruction throughout the book of Proverbs. And the heart of Proverbs contains a large collection of wisdom sayings, which again are applicable for today. They're not just sayings that they're not, you know, there's an old proverb that says, you know, blah, but, but it, they're wise and, and, and sayings that are applicable for today. And there's no particular organization about the way they're come. There's, there's no particular line of thought. Solomon doesn't sit down and put everything in one column of thought and, you know, like so much of the Bible does. It just, you know, I kind of envision Solomon sitting around and thinking of the goodness of the Lord and all the things he's learned and he begins to write. And his thoughts might be going, you know, like mine do, 400 different directions at one time. Until at last time, my fingers won't keep up with the keyboard. And uh, anyway, I end up in trouble. Despite the vast diversity in the subjects covered in this material, it does not touch on several of the prominent religious themes in the Old Testament. But through dealing with what are often considered the more mundane areas of life, Proverbs teaches us that there is a moral order to all creation. In other words, Proverbs does not deal with some of the more major doctrinal matters throughout Old Testament history. It doesn't deal with the fact that here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He doesn't address that. That's already been established. He's not. But he deals with what we might consider the more mundane things of life. In other words, he deals with the issues of the day, with the things of life. How to avoid the snare of sin. And if there's anyone that could probably talk to us pretty straightforward about how to avoid the snares of sin, Solomon probably could. He could probably tell you right up front, if you want to stay out of trouble and sexual immorality, you better get rid of the house of concubines. You 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 understand what I'm saying? You better kind of clean house and get things right if you want to stay out of trouble. In fact, Paul made a statement, he said, abstain from the very appearance of evil. Now, I know over the years that passage has just been absolutely taken out of context, and you've been, folks have been beat to death with that. But Paul was simply saying, don't get yourself in a situation where you get in trouble. Abstain from the very appearance of evil. If you see something coming down the road, it will go and entrap you. There's certain things that will entrap some folks and won't entrap other folks. There are certain things that might be a problem for you that are not a problem for me. There are certain things that might be a problem for me that are not a problem for you. So we need to recognize those, and the Spirit will reveal those things to us, and we'll know them, and that's what we're to abstain from. Don't get yourself backed in a corner. So that's what Proverbs, and he's teaching about, you know, look, here's what I, here's what I know, and here's what I've learned through God's Spirit and His direction. Some things I've done that, whoo, got me in more trouble than... 
Proverbs teaches us that there is a moral order to all creation. God just didn't randomly decide one day, hey, I want some folks I can mess with. There is a moral order to God's creation. And violations of that order only lead to adverse consequences. Can we say amen? Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to read in just a moment Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 out of the New International Version. But before I do, there's a couple of points I want to illustrate and bring to the forefront. First of all, Solomon lists seven sins that God hates. Pretty strong terms, isn't it? Seven sins that God hates. The next point I want you to notice is the list of sins is progressively more serious. Now, I am of the opinion, and I, and I feel like sin is sin. However, from a moral perspective, there, are, there is sin that's more heinous than others. Okay? Now, it's just as wrong to lie in the eyes of God as it is to murder. But obviously, murder is probably the more serious from a moral and ethical standpoint, a serious sin, obviously, than tongue of fib. So, God, we see these things listed, these sins listed in a progressively more serious, and it seems to be comprehensive, providing an overall look at our sinful human nature. We are by nature sinful. I don't care how good you've been all your life. We are, when we're born, we're born into sin. We're born a sinner. And the only way we can be saved from all of that sin that brought, was brought about by the Adamic nature and brought about by Adam and Eve's fall in the garden is through the gracious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to also notice that each evil in the list stems from a self-centered attitude. As we read this, I want you to kind of pay attention to that. It's, it's, it's stemmed from a self-centered attitude. And with that said, let's read verse, chapter 6, verse number 16. The wise man says, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Here we go. Here's the list. Haughty eyes. Your Bible might read a proud look. Arrogance, if you will. A lying tongue. Number two. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Number four, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Number five, feet that are quick to rush into evil. That's interesting. Where am I at? Number six? Yeah. Number six, a false witness who pours out lies. And number seven, a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And I'm not going to comment on that too much right now because i got a whole page full of notes for that one. 
Amen. Let me, let me say this. In Scripture, perhaps you wonder, well, why just seven things? Why, why is there seven things? Well, let me, let me talk about that, that a minute. In Scripture, symbolic meanings were assigned to certain numbers. If you haven't observed that yet in your Bible reading, please do so. You'll see numerology used a lot throughout Bible. In fact, there's preachers that spend their lifetime studying the numerology of the Bible and, and all the different ways that numbers have been used and what, what they signify and what they mean. Now, I don't have that kind of time. Uh, it would be interesting, no doubt, but uh, time does not permit me to spend that much time. But, for instance, God's people use the number three to signify completeness or purity. For example, the Israelites used a three-year-old unblemished animals in their sacrifices. God's people assigned a sacred significance to the number four and multiples of it. For example, the Bible refers to what? The four corners of earth, of the earth. The four winds of heaven. The four living creatures around the throne of God. Just to name a few. Then the Bible also associated the number twelve and multiples of it with the fullest of God's people. For example, there were twelve tribes of Israel. Why not thirteen? Or 14, or 16, or... There was 12. And 24 divisions of priests. That's interesting. There were 12... Now, I have scriptures to back all this up. I'm just going to take this because of the constraints of time. I'm not going to give you all of them. So you'll be going... Your head will just be spinning around here in a minute trying to write them all down. There were 12 apostles and 24 elders around the throne. God's people use the number seven to signify perfection or complete, completion or fulfillment, if you will. Major festivals lasted what? Seven days. Israel had 70 elders. That's a multiple of seven. For you mathematicians, times ten. And the year of Jubilee came after 49 years. Interesting, huh? The Old Testament prophets used these words to describe arrogant, the arrogant kings of Assyria and Egypt. The psalmist used the words a lying tongue. I got ahead of myself. <clears throat> The first of these we see is haughty eyes and a lying tongue. Or, as your Bible might read, a proud look. An arrogant look mirrors a proud heart. And a proud heart, I might add, that does not fear Yahweh and reflects brazen ambition bent on personal gain and the destruction of what is valuable to others. In other words, it's the opposite of we are what we are by the grace of God. It's the idea that I am what I am by my own ambition, my own making. How do you look? I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm proud. I'm just, you know. 
I'm all of that and a bag of chips. That's a phrase I hear a lot out and I'm not sure I know what it means, but in other words, I'm just all of that plus a little more. You know what I'm saying? That's that's what he's talking about here about this proud look, this this idea that we are really something else. God hates that. He hates that. And it's very unproductive to our Christian walk and our Christian witness as it relates to you and I. Because what happens, that kind of attitude and that kind of approach will destroy the values of others to make us look good. Have you ever met someone that will absolutely go out of their way to point out the wrong and everybody else to make themselves look better? You talk about something that just absolutely gets to me. Get in a get in a get in a high level strategic meeting and you've got some clown there and all he wants to do is point out what everybody else done wrong to make himself look better. And boy, they're out there. The Old Testament prophets use these words, this haughty look and this proud, to describe the arrogant kings of Assyria and Egypt. In Isaiah chapter 10 and also in Daniel chapter 11. You see, the psalmist used the words lying tongue in Proverbs, in, in, in Proverbs 6 and 17 and in Psalms 109 and 2 to describe someone who betrays in order to personally profit. Someone who will betray someone else in order to personally profit is a lying tongue. This, this particular type of psalm was also used later on in Acts chapter 1 and verse 20 as it related to Judas. Amen. The vices or sins, if you will, of Proverbs here in chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, contrast very sharply with the Beatitudes that are found in Matthew chapter 5. For example, the haughty eye at the beginning of Solomon's list, if you will, is the opposite of the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit is in recognition that, you know, without God, without His grace, without His provision, we're poor. We have nothing without it. That's acknowledging His sovereignty. That's acknowledging that God created us. We are what we are because of Him. We're here today and we're allowed to get up today because He gave us a breath of life. He can snuff us out like that. We're His. Creation is His. The earth is His. It all belongs to Him. I know that's contrary to philosophy today. I know that rubs a lot of these modern folks the wrong way. But it's fact nonetheless. And one day God will stand on the throne of Israel and show the world who's who.
<clears throat> the storing up of dissension we see in Proverbs 6 and 19 is, is the antithesis of Jesus talking about in Matthew 5 and 9 being a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. What are they going to do? That's right. They shall see God. One might ask the question, just what is the Lord's attitude towards the vices that are listed here in, in Proverbs? Well, Proverbs 6 and 16 underscores how God feels about these particular vices that Solomon lists here. God hates them. That's what the Bible says. God hates them. The idea of strong aversion could not be any clearer than what it is right here. You see, God's loathing of these sins is reinforced by the use of this term, detestable. It just adds punts to it, if you will. Fuel to the fire, if you will. In other words, he abhorred such vices and would not refrain from punishing those who were guilty of committing them. I think we all understand that whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That's the law of nature. It's a law of harvest. It's an immutable law of God. Well, but pastor, what about all of those folks that just done that? Look at these, some of these guys up there. You know, we could just go down through a list of folks that come to my mind right now that sit up in Washington that don't go there. But anyway, you know, and I, everywhere for that for that matter that that. That, you know, everybody's going to reap what they sow. Now, it may, you may not see it in your lifetime. As the one old fellow said one time, my dad tells this story. <clears throat> Good friend of his went to the market one day with an elderly gentleman that was at the church, and he happened to notice when he put his meat on the scales to weigh it, to build it out. You know how they do, you know, when you go to the deli and you get meats or whatever, the meat counter, and they weigh it. You pay by weight. He happened to notice that the butcher's thumb was on the scale. Guy says to him, you, you see that? As they were walking away, he had his thumb on the scale. He said, yep, I know. does it all the time. He'll stand before God one day. Everybody will have their day. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> Another question that you might ask is, what sort of progression is evidenced in this particular list? What would you, if you were looking at that for the first time, what kind of progression would you see? There? Well, the vices that Solomon listed progress from that which God hates to that which he literally detests. Now watch this as it unfolds, because we're going somewhere here with this, and I don't want you to become bored and see this as mundane, because there's a progression here that's taking place. Now he talks about, talks about the lying, the sixth thing, you know, the, 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 the proud look, the lying tongue, hands are shed in some blood, and on down the list, until it just, it's just progressively 
intensifying. For instance, the arrogance, deceit, and murder of Proverbs 6 and 17 are horrendous enough within themselves, right? But even worse are the evil plans and activities alluded in verse 18, and worst of all, though are perjury and discord. So you notice we got hands that shed innocent blood. That's bad enough. And then we've got next one is a heart that devises wicked plans. Oh. And then feet that are swift to run, uh, run in running into evil. And then a false witness who speaks lies. And then finally, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Amen. So what are the virtues that God loves in contrast with these vices that we're talking about here? Well, it's not hard to imagine that rather than us having haughty eyes, God wants us to be humble in heart. I can never think, I can, when I approach the subject of humility, I can't do it without thinking of Moses. You know, it talks about, most everyone agree that probably Moses was one of the most humble men that's recorded in the Bible. Here, here was a leader of a nation that had untold power through his relationship with Almighty God. He was commissioned to embark upon an enormous task. And yet, he remained so humble and so understanding of where his authority and his power came from as he proceeded on. Oh, he made mistakes. We all do. And but never, in Calista that I can find, did Moses make the mistake of being a haughty, arrogant individual. Never. He made some mistakes and disobedience from time to time. You know, got a little angry. I'd have been angry too. I'd have, phew. Lord, what he done would have been mild to what I'd have. I don't know what type personality Moses was, and I'm a type A personality, and, and, and sometimes we're hard to corral. <laughs> Nonetheless, Moses kept his, with the exception of the time he got mad and smoked a rock instead of speaking to it when God told him, you know, in his anger, and a couple of the times he could have, he was a very humble man. He always recognized God's sovereign authority. When God was ready to take Israel out, God said, I have had it. You folks have just absolutely annoyed me to the point I am, I'm done with you. Moses, you and Aaron, get out of the way because I am going to walk in there and I'm, 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 man. Moses threw himself on the ground. I know I'm, I'm speaking this in, in, in modern day vernacular. Moses threw himself on the ground and said, Lord, if you do that to them, me too. What? Yeah, I said, me too. If you're going to kill all them, kill me too. There's no need going on in this journey. That's how humble and how he recognized God's 
power and sovereign authority. He knew that was the only way that he could get God's attention and cause God to step back on the situation and reevaluate. And God stepped back and he reevaluated the situation and he made another approach. This time he done a little different. Amen. You see, God wants us to be humble in heart. Instead of lying and bearing false witness, we should tell the truth. Rather than plotting evil and racing to do wrong, we should seek to promote goodness and righteousness as is defending the cause of the innocent. Amen. Which of these, if you had to choose, which of these vices do you think is the most heinous? Murdering someone? This last vice that Solomon listed here, sowing discord among the brethren. It seems to be the one that God really detests the most. You see, dissension among brethren, it has a long, destructive, lasting effect. Because now you're not only messing with yourself... And with your relationship with God, you're messing with the relationship of others. We don't have that right. Only God has the right and His creative power. At first, we might not think of stirring up dissension as being as detestable as such vices as lying or murder or stealing or whatever. But then we realize that deceit is often the cause of quarrels. Which in turn can lead to murder and other unsavories. It doesn't just stop there. So-and-so said so-and-so, and then so-and-so goes and tells so-and-so, and so-and-so goes and does this, and said, well, he said that, and that one said she said that, and the next thing you know, you've got the reputation lies of 50 people destroyed. Just like that. So we have looked at briefly the six six things that the Lord hates and seven that are detestable. Proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Amen. Let's talk about for a few moments, we know what God hates. We looked at what he, what is detestable. 
I would be remiss if I did not approach the subject of, okay, that's all good, well and good. Now, what does God require? So let's talk about what God requires for a few moments in our remaining time. A few points I want to make before we read verses 20 through 28. And I want you to keep in mind as I read those passages. First of all, Solomon told his children to cherish wise instruction from God because it would guide and protect them. Amen. Second, I want you to notice as we read these that he compared God's wisdom to a lamp that could light one's life. The third item that I want you to pay particular attention to as I read these passages in a moment is Solomon emphasized the special dangers of sexual sin using strong metaphors to describe the daily traps of immoral women. And I'll add also immoral men. He also warned that people could not trifle with such sins and not be scarred for life. So now, with that said, verse number 20 says, My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Now remember, In this particular culture, in which Solomon was raised, was born and raised in, every day they were taught from the Holy Scriptures. Every day they were versed in the things of God. Every day they were challenged by the teachings that were brought down to them through their forefathers. That was part of their life every day. Contrary to much of our society today, which, boy, they could sure use a good dose of this, have veered and gotten far, far away from the tenets and the principles of God's truth. So keep that in mind. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. Put a placard around your neck so you can turn it around and once in a while remind yourself the things you've been taught. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. Keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife, do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. 
and the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? That's an interesting question. I think Solomon is saying, you're going to get in trouble. Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Wow. And much like Solomon, the Apostle Paul also urged believers. Remember the Corinthian church had a problem with such immoral activity. Had things going on that were... Paul said, y'all better get that straightened up before I come down there. Because if I come down there and y'all don't have his handle taken care of scripturally, I will. And you won't like it how it comes out when I do it. So y'all better get it straightened up. And I, again, I, I'm, I know I'm saying, I'm, I'm telling you that in my terms, okay? Paul was a little more gracious. He noted that believers' bodies had been united with the spirit and body of Jesus Christ. We no longer live and die to ourselves. We belong to the Lord. Not only by creation, but also through new birth. So it's not only just a creative fact that we are God's creation and we are His children, but by new birth we have become an eternal child of God. So Paul pointed out that we have been united with the spirit and body of Christ, which is the church. Thus they should not unite their bodies with those of prostitutes and, 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 and sinful immorality. You see, such a sinful act was equal to des desecrating the body of Christ. <coughs> Paul was telling the church at Corinth, by your activities, you are desecrating the body of Christ. It's not just a matter between you and the Whoever it is you're messing with. Or their immediate families. You are desecrating the body of Christ. Because we have through new birth become united and joined to the body of Christ. So it not only affects us and the other parties involved, but it affects the entire body of Christ. Or it affects the entire body of Christ. Well, it infects too. Paul also said a little leaven, leaven for a whole lot. You, you, you ladies, does any of y'all ladies, does any of the women still bake these days much anymore? I mean, I don't. I, I, these are bad economic times, and I, I, and all the times I've been traveling since all these bad economic times, the, the population of the restaurants haven't decreased one ounce, one iota. So I don't know. I thought maybe everybody quit cooking. <laughs> oh, anyway, I don't know where that came from. But Paul implied that sexual intimacy is more than a physical interaction. It is not completely divorced from the spiritual. Amen? So to him, it was an expression of two people's whole personalities, if you will. It was a way for them to reveal and commit themselves to each other. Now, bodily unions in and of themselves are not bad, obviously. Uh, we understand that. But a believer also has a spiritual union with God. 
Therefore, it was repulsive to Paul that people united with God would also join themselves to prostitutes, and that is why the apostle urged the believers to shun all forms of sexual immorality, abstain from the very appearance of evil. Don't get yourself in that situation. In other words, don't put yourself in a place where you can't say no, or you can't back out of it. Amen. So I suppose the question could be entertained. What did Solomon urge those at that particular time and us as well? What did he want us to do with these instructions? Read them, think they're good. Let it stop there or live by them. You see, Solomon urged us to keep our Father's commandments. Similarly, they were told not to forsake their mother's teaching. In other words, the recipients of Solomon's instructions were to listen attentively and heed what they had learned. Oftentimes, we have the mindset, and I did when I was growing up, and we do a lot of times as it relates to the things of God. Well, they're trying to withhold something good from me. My dad would tell me there are certain places he didn't want me to go. Well, he said a little more direct than that. Uh, don't you go there, boy, and if you do, I'm going to drop the hammer on you. Anyway, and as I become a teenager, it got a little more direct. And, and of course, I couldn't see any farther than the end of my nose, and some days that was a challenge. But there were things he could look out and see that might be an issue of trouble. I didn't see it. Didn't care to see it. All I knew was it could be fun. All I knew was going down to the swimming hole and jumping in was a barrel of fun. And don't you go down there by yourself, boy. If you do, and you come back home, I'm going to skin you. Why? I know how to swim. We couldn't see any I just used that as an illustration, but... You know, it wasn't until after I had a cousin drown that done the very same thing. I recognized, now I know why Dad didn't want me to go down there by myself. They might have saved him if somebody had been there to help him. And we oftentimes have that mindset, and I said about the point of the fact that oftentimes we have that mindset of, well, why don't you know, come on, God, it's a good man. I, whoo, feels good. It's got to be all right. But we don't know what lies behind the veil. And so it is with these instructions. We're to take them and apply them. They were to obey and apply these wise counsel to their lives. So what are these wise, the benefits of these wise counsels that are listed in these passages? Well, first of all, Solomon used vivid expressions to underscore the benefit of adhering to wise counsel. His readers were to, and those of us today, not only his readers, but everyone that followed after, were to bind his words upon their heart. That is continually. And to tie his instructions, use that illustration, about their neck. Now, he's not saying to literally put a chain around your neck and a placard, you know, with all these two, you know, list of, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, down this placard. Now, it might not be a bad idea, but 
<coughs> that, you know, he wasn't literally saying that, but, but the intent is here. Get them, get them internalized and get them etched into your mind and in your heart. Let the Holy Spirit write these things on the table of our heart. You see, Christ-likeness is not something that just poof and happens, but it's something that as we allow God's Spirit to work and to mature us and to grow in us and to produce in us, and He begins to write these things on the tables of our heart, not on those tablets of stone, but on the tables of our heart, we begin to respond and recognize and we begin to become more like Jesus Christ and then we don't see ourselves in the mirror anymore we begin to see the glory of the Lord reflecting in the mirror amen and if there was ever a time in our society and world today Christ likeness needs to be preeminent it's the day we live today when the world and society is running headlong away from the very thing that can save them running away from the very thing that can bring stability to the whole universe and the whole world as we know it, they're running away from it. So, he uses that idea, and the idea is that we are always to keep divine wisdom in mind. Those who heeded Solomon's godly admonitions would experience timely guidance and protection from the moral pitfalls of life. A couple more things, and then I'll, I'll quit. So, What happens to the person that engages in sexual immorality? Solomon predicted disaster for those who engage in sexual immorality. Now that's not to say that a person can't make a mistake and fall and, and be and be reconciled. I'm not saying that. Well, that's just that's probably true, yeah. <laughs> but that's not to say that a person can't make a mistake in a weak moment and not be reconciled. I'm not saying that. We can be. People are all the time. We're talking about the continual desire for those who want to be sexually and immorally active. <clears throat> there are those people, sadly to say, not only in society, but in the, the professed church today that are just looking for the next good time. Uh, it pains me to admit it, but it's true nonetheless. And so oftentimes, <clears throat> it's that mindset that comes, I'm too big to fall, that gets preachers, and gets people in big, big trouble. There's no one on the face of God's earth that's too big to fall. Giving yourself, the, oh, I've been filled with the Spirit for 49 years, and there ain't no, don't, don't even go there. I don't care how long you put yourself in that predicament long enough. Sooner or later. The adversary will find your weak point, and when you do, he'll drop the hammer. And then gloat because of the fall. So, Solomon predicted disaster for those who engage in sexual immorality. He specifically addressed the issue of lusting after immoral women and being entranced 
by the flattering words and lovely eyes of the wayward wife. You see, the prostitute reduces the foolish to a loaf of bread, he said. While the adulteress brings utter devastation to one's life. Solomon compared engaging in sexual immorality to scooping fire, perhaps created by flaming coals or whatever, into one's lap. Who? You're going to get burnt. <laughs> You're just going to get burnt. No two ways about it. You know, there was little doubt that the clothes of such a person would just be poof. Solomon then compared the immorality to walking on hot coals and the likelihood of one's feet being scourged. You cannot escape continual behavior and continual activity in that lifestyle will eventually, at some point, it'll get you. Again, I'm not suggesting in any way this morning that those who make a mistake and in a moment of weakness and whether it be telling a lie, whether it be sexual immorality, whether it be uh, causing dissension, whatever case, cannot be reconciled. That's not what we're saying at all. That's not why, that's not what I'm teaching. But I am teaching a continual lifestyle of that will get you in more trouble than you can ever get out of. These are the things we need to avoid. At all costs. The things that Solomon learned, not only from experience, but from God's instructions, don't go there. Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. And as I close, let me share with you in contrast, in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In contrast to what Solomon just said, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God bless you. Thank you for your attention. Let's take a few moments and greet one another, and we'll come back just momentarily for a time.